Thanks for joining the podcast with Tamara Gondor. Conversations with everyday innovators that reject status quo, think differently, and make a positive difference in their world. Listen in so you can ignite innovation, influence others, and make an impact too. And now your host, CrossFit addict, knee-high sock lover, and according to her kids, average cook, Tamara Gondor. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. So glad you're all back. Want to take a moment to say thank you for all the incredible new reviews that you've given us on iTunes. I'm so appreciative of that. As I always say, I feel like those reviews aren't for me. They're actually for the everyday innovators we have on. And these are people from all across the globe with all different experiences and backgrounds. And so thank you, because I think your reviews are a round of applause for them. So speaking of a round of applause and reviews and awesome insights, let's get started with today's interview, which I know you're going to get a lot out of. So today I have Yuri on and he, his everyday innovator style is instinctual imaginative. So let me tell you what that means. And if you're out there, here's how I want you listening. I want you listening for thinking like, oh yeah, that relates to me. I'm instinctual imaginative or I have one of those or oh, I'm not that. I think I innovate differently, but so-and-so that I know, maybe that's that person. So the instinctual side is a much more circuitous thought pattern. So most of us are A to B to C to D, and that's okay. People who have instinctual are more like A to X to L over to Y, back to L, right? And it kind of connects dots in new and meaningful ways. People who have instinctual are really good at seeing patterns and connections that the rest of us perhaps miss or don't find. And I often find with instinctuals, by the way, and Yuri will kind of get into this with you, that people who have instinctual tend to be able to say things really quickly, like that gut reaction, and then have to back up into the logic as to why, while the rest of us are more like logic first, right? And then the rush, and then the idea later. So they go backwards. So the imaginative side is all about playing in the gaps. Less is almost more. Um, imaginatives are really good at innovating where nothing exists. In fact, they play really, really well there. So that combination of instinctual and imaginative brings connective novel innovation to the table. Can't wait to hear all about it. So Yuri, welcome to the show. Tell the world who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks. For, uh, thank you for having me tomorrow. Um, and I, I would say that <laughs> that's pretty much bang on in terms of who I am. Um, so uh, the label that I carry, I guess, is CEO and founder of Healthpreneur. And we help health professionals and coaches get clients and scale their practices or their coaching businesses online as opposed to their clinics. And so we do that without the grind. We help them with very with a very simple business model and systems and frameworks as opposed to sweat equity so they can actually enjoy life and impact more people in the process. So I want to back up and ask you a question about that because as you were saying that, Yuri, I started to think about my journey into entrepreneurship. And funny enough, I used to have a health and fitness business way, way back in the day. It was called Bridal Bootcamp. Yeah, it was way, way. I lost a bunch of weight for my own wedding. And then people started asking me to do it for them. And then one thing led to another and a book and all this stuff. I don't do it anymore, but it was way back in the day. But one of the things um, I really came to realize about myself, and I think this is true for others, not just in the health field, but overall, is that we're really good at that thing that we know, right? So whether that's fitness or, you know, whatever, um, cleaning, technology, whatever. But but then we spin our wheels on the business side of it because we don't know what to do there. And we kind of become our own worst enemy. How did you figure out, like, what pieces come together to help, 
the healthpreneur out there so that they're not spinning their wheels because you could be the best fitness trainer in the world and still struggle to run a successful business. And, and then you're over there thinking, I thought I was good. Yeah. That's a good question. And I think, you know, one of the things that allows me to be in the position I'm in is I've been online since 2005. So it's not like I had a good month and now I'm like a, a guru. I went through a good number of years of, of struggle in my business. Like, I mean, from 2005 to 2009 online, I was making less than poverty line income. And I was training clients in person at the time as a trainer and also as a nutritionist. And I was just burnt out, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. And I came online because I thought that was going to give me quote unquote passive income, which by the way, doesn't really exist in business, but whatever. Oh, just... <laughs> yeah. So the the thing that, so I didn't know anything about marketing, about sales. I was terrible at that. I had you know money mindset issues, all, like all the stuff that all of us deal with, right? I went through years of that stuff. But the problem was that I tried to figure everything out by myself. And that's why I struggled for so long. And then in 2010, I said, maybe I should hire a coach. And that was the first real kind of inflection point where I started to see, oh, that's how stuff works. And then basically from that point till now, I mean, I've invested in coaching and mentorship every single year. I've, I've spent more than like $1.1 million just on education because I realized like you, no one can figure this stuff out on their own. So I think from that desperation came a lot of really great innovation. And I shouldn't even call it innovation, to be honest. Some of it was, but some of it was just like learning the basic skills of how to be more influential. And then I just got to the point where we built that business up. And that, that, so that first business was like, I was the health expert helping people with their health. And we helped half a million people in the process. Eventually built it up to a very high level and I sold it a couple years ago. Um, and then a lot of people in our space just started asking for business advice. And I was like, oh, there's a lot of people who don't know this stuff. And that's where Healthpreneur really came into the mix. So yeah, so that's kind of the journey. And I want to point something out in this story, Yuri, that I love. So uh, oftentimes when we think about scaling our own business or maybe launching a business, we forget to access the knowledge and the experience that we've already had. And like you could have tried to scale by impacting more people, meaning coaching more people for fitness, right? But you realize in the process, oh, I've got this skill that I can translate over here to actually help people do that themselves. And help other coaches, right? Help other trainers. I've got a very good friend who's an IQE, uh, IQE certified coach, and he owns a catering company. And where they've seen tremendous growth, their catering company is phenomenal. But where he's seen tremendous growth is not that, it's helping other catering companies do good, right? And figure out their business model. So for all of you listening out there, I just want you to think about what are ways you can leverage your knowledge or your experience in other ways. It's not always a straight line. Sometimes the opportunities are off, I think, a little bit to the left and to the right. Yeah. And I will say something to that as well. Like, I think because the barrier to entry to do that is so low, anyone can become a coach or an expert. And it's kind of dangerous because I don't know if there's ever a conversation. We've, spoke, we've spoken with like tens of thousands of health professionals and coaches. And I would say like 90% of them come in, haven't been burned before from somebody else, like another coach, another agency, whatever. And it's, it's really sad to see, you know, I pride myself on the fact that I'm like, I've, I've actually done this stuff I'm teaching. And, and like, we just have a core philosophy that we don't teach anything that we haven't mastered. So like our clients will ask me about certain things. I'm like, hey, just heads up. I'll spend $50,000 on Facebook ads to test this. And then I'll introduce it to you if it makes sense. And I, I don't know if that same level of integrity exists. I mean, I'm sure it does, obviously. But 
to the level that it should, I don't think it does. So it's like, if you have expertise and you have a track record doing the thing, great. And then if it makes sense to amplify that to more people, go for it, if it makes sense. Well, look, you're speaking my language on that. I mean, we can have a whole different podcast on on that. I do a lot of keynote speaking and I can't tell you the number of, I mean, I could tell you probably on, it would take me a lot, the number of speakers I know who speak on topics that they've never done. They're good speakers. They're good speakers, right? Good orators, but they've never done it. And it drives me batty because I think you should only hire people who have actually done it. I spent 20 years in innovation before I started talking about it. Like I know what I'm doing, but I, yeah. So it drives me absolutely crazy. Um, what's a big win or something that you're really proud of? I mean, along those lines, so we, when I started Healthpreneur, um, our whole business model is largely based on paid acquisition. So we run Facebook ads, et cetera, as opposed to like organic grind and hustle, which by the way, was my previous business. So I have the contrast of like having done that very successfully, but it took a very long time. So when we started Healthpreneur, I was running all of my own ads. So I was like in the ads manager in Facebook, doing all that stuff. And I did that for about a year and a half. We were doing multiple seven figures. And then I said, all right, I'm going to like step out of this now and like hand this off to someone else who could do it. So we hired an agency and they kind of ran our stuff for a bit. And then we just parted ways and went to another agency, worked with them for about a year and a half, then parted ways, then worked with another agency. And you know, our retainers like with these agencies were you know, in the neighborhood of $20,000 a month, like $20,000 a month, just as a retainer. I'm like, this is insane. And the results were, they were good, right? Um, but at the end of last year, we had a really bad, two really bad months and just some stuff that was breaking down with one of these agencies that we were working with at the time. And I said, this is, this is done. I'm done with this. I took everything back in-house. I ran the account again. And within the space of 45 days, we reduced our cost per acquisition by 60%, tripled our ad spend. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what the hell has been happening for the past five years? So it was a really, really big confirmation of something that I've really started to believe. Like, It's very hard for... When you have fractional attention, it's very hard to get full-time results. So if you've got an agency giving you fractional attention, you're getting fractional results. So when we brought everything back in-house and we did a deep dive and kind of took over the management of the account, I was like, man, this isn't actually that hard. You just have to give it a little bit of love and attention. And that's been a huge win for us because the lead gen for us has always been good, but I'm like, why? Like, I feel it could be better. And it took us five years. It took five years and we were doing well. Like We're still profitable and everything, but it's like, how much money did we leave on the table? How much opportunity did we leave on the table? Because... We had other people doing it. And the thing is, like, no one else cares about your business as much as you do. And it's not to say that you as the, you know, the, the owner needs to do everything. But there's a very big difference between having someone in-house full-time and outsourced a few hours a week. And that's, that's just been a big realization for us this year. And we're basically like just never... I shouldn't say never, but 99% of the time, we're bringing people in-house for pretty much everything. So that's been a big win for us. So I want to pause on something you said, because you said it quickly, but it really made my eyes kind of get big, which is uh, you can't give fractional attention and get full-time results. And that to me seems like really freaking good advice across everything that you do in life. And I'm just, you're talking about social media and bringing that in-house and agency. And, and I get it, right? They have 10 clients at a time, 100 at a time. Have you applied that to other parts of your life or work? Yeah. And, and I want to be very clear about this because I talk about the danger of delegation a lot. 
because I've made a lot of mistakes with delegation, i.e. you hire someone great and you let them do their thing within KPIs and they still don't perform. And you're like, oh, maybe I should approach this differently. But there are times where there are things that we should not be doing. For instance, there's a lot of $10 an hour tasks. Like you're not going to build a million dollar company on $10 tasks. So you have to identify as the leader, what are the things that just drive me nuts, like energetically just drain me? For me, it's like editing an article. Oh my God. Little things like that. Like that's stuff I shouldn't do. And there are things that other people can do. So I think it's about number one, identifying what are the highest leverage, highest value activities that you do that light you up, that bring you energy, that really allow you to bring your magic to the world and do more of that. And for most of us, it's only a few things. Like it's not going to be 10 things. Like I've noticed that for me, it's like talking. That's about it. Right. So stuff like this, I'm good. But everything else, it's, I think you have to really, for a lot of things, you have to get to a level of proficiency before you can delegate it because then you don't know how to identify good performance. You don't know how to have the conversation around rectifying bad performance or even coaching and training others. And that's a big mistake. I see that a lot in our space where they're like, I just want to work with my clients. I'm like, great. This person's going to ruin your business if you give off all of your marketing and sales to them. So yeah, that's just something I've noticed. I think a couple of things that are so important about what you said. So one is, uh, I do think you have to delegate to have full-time effort into something, right? Because you can't you can't have full-time, you can only have fractional energy or effort if you're doing a thousand things. So I don't, what I didn't hear you say was you have to do everything. But what I heard you say is if you want the full-time results, you got to give the full-time energy towards that thing. So and sometimes that means bringing someone to do it in-house, I think. But for me, I took that to me. So it's funny that you say that about having to know the process first before you delegate so you know how to manage it. And I've always had this debate with people because every time I do anything, I do it first and then I hire someone. And people always kind of the pushback I get is don't like, why are you bothering being in the weeds? Like, let it go, let go of control, go hire the person. And my argument has always been, well, but I don't even know what I'm telling them to do because I don't quite understand how this works. So at least let me have some understanding. I don't need to understand all of it. But at least let me have some understanding before I, I move it forward. Um, but it's always funny because it's always been a big debate for us. And it's, and it's a very valid point because you could say, well, Yuri, like, are you going to learn how to do everything then? The reality is like, as the CEO of your business, if you're bootstrapping from day one, you have to learn how to do everything. If you're backed by venture capital and you've got $10 million and you're just going to go hiring people, then yeah, like bring people in who are better than you. And there are certain things you may not have to do. But for most of us, we're like bootstrapping from, from ground zero. You have to do everything. And even what I've noticed is that as your business grows and you really move into the role of CEO, you become even more of a generalist, which means you have to know everything. And if you don't, like that's always going to be a weak link in your business. And I agree with you. Like You have to have a certain level of proficiency to have a conversation with someone to hold them accountable or to a certain level of performance. And it's not that you have to be the best at everything, but you have to be dangerous enough. Yeah. So here's the other thing I want to add to that. And I got a question for you. You said that you can't build a million dollar business on $10 tasks. And I'm going to put that on my wall because I sometimes get bogged down in the weeds of things I shouldn't be doing, but I can do them. So I do do them. Right. And sometimes I get the mindset of it's just easier to get it done by myself, which is a horrible, horrible way to look at it. Um, But 
I love that. And I would challenge all of us out there to make a list, like two columns, $10 tasks and million dollar tasks. I don't care if you're a leader in a company or if you're an entrepreneur, I bet you we will find that if we did that, that we find that we have this whole pile of $10 tasks. This takes up all our time. And I would venture to say million dollar tasks that we never get to because we're too busy on the other side. So I love that piece of advice. Thank you for that. I'm going to I'm going to do that exercise, actually, after we got this call, and I encourage other people to do it. You're listening to Conversations with Everyday Innovators on With Tamara Gondor Podcast. Let's take a moment to thank our generous partners that make this possible. I want to take a moment to talk about my friends at Howdy Puppy. Dogs experience all the same problems as humans when it comes to joint pain, anxiety, digestion, and arthritis. A great way to help our four-legged family members with these ailments is with CBD-infused pet treats. Who doesn't like treats? As you longtime listeners know, my Mastiff, Zoe, is part of my family, but is getting older and has some anxiety issues when strangers come around. Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats has totally changed her disposition, and I know she feels like her young, energetic, confident self when she gets Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats. There are many CBD-infused dog treats on the market, but the truth is that many of them are overpriced and ineffective. We've looked at dozens of CBD dog treats and found most of them disappointing. Howdy Puppy is among the best brands in the CBD pet business. They deliver consistent quality, and their treats look and taste amazing, according to our dogs, of course. The company makes CBD dog treats in three flavors steak, bacon, and cheese rolls. All of Howdy Puppy CBD treats contain natural ingredients, including high-quality full-spectrum hemp oil, all sourced and made in the USA. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in Howdy Puppy, but before I put my name on the company, I had an independent lab in Denver, Colorado, verify the quality and consistency of their treats. They are truly as advertised. Go online today at howdypuppy.com, link will also be in the show notes, and use promo code TAMARA, T-A-M-A-R-A, that's me, to get 20% off the absolute best CBD dog treats on the market. You will not be disappointed. Howdypuppy.com, promo code TAMARA. Don't let them suffer needlessly. Let them enjoy life too. So my next question for you is, what's a story of a time that you had to think differently or be innovative to get the results you were looking for? I think, you know, again, we're just going back to um, on the client's acquisition side. So we focus, I focus a lot of my energy on acquisition and delivery, which is quite honestly like all of the business. But there's like with Facebook, there's been a lot of changes over the years, right? Especially last year, iOS 14.5 disrupted a lot of advertisers and a lot of people freaked out. They're like, oh my God, I can't advertise on Facebook. Meanwhile, we're like, no, no, we kind of figured it out and we're good. And our clients benefit from that. So I think one of the things that we've been very good at is we've always been ahead of the curve with respect to changes, updates, uh, constraints with respect to Facebook advertising as a platform, because that's what we show most of our clients how to do. And we've provided solutions that they couldn't find elsewhere. And that really... It positions us as a solution that, I mean, that's, I think, what every business should be is like in some way, shape, or form, a solution that your clients can't really get elsewhere. So you, you avoid commoditization. And if clients do leave, 
they're leaving knowing full well that there's a certain pain of loss. Like you're you're removing yourself from this safety net or whatever you want to call it that's going to help you get better results. You're okay with that, right? So I think that's something on the acquisition side we've been very, very good at. And it's allowed us to continually, for us, really outspend our marketplace and then for our clients to be more competitive than a lot of the people in the health space because of what they're able to do. And then on the delivery side, I look at delivery. So for us, it's coaching clients. And I look at it as like Disney World. Because like there's the, I think there's the most amount of innovation possible on clients' experience, delivery, whether it's a product or service. And I love that stuff because I don't know about you. I've like I've very, very seldomly gone to a business, whether it's a hotel, a Starbucks, an airlines, and been blown away by that experience. Barely. And it's just so simple, like little things. Like I went to Starbucks yesterday to pick up a sandwich and a drink. I ordered 10 minutes before I got there. And when I got there, the drink was ready. And I said, hey, is, is the sandwich ready? And the guy's like, oh, sorry. And then he went to put it in the oven. I'm like, dude, I ordered this 10 minutes ago. you know. And it's just like small things. So I spent a lot of time on, again, with our team on how do we continually help our clients win in a bigger way? As an example, so we had a process about two years ago where we would review in a very specific way our clients' Uh, messaging, whether it was like a webinar or something else. And we started to realize that that was a bottleneck at scale. So we said, okay, well, if we had 10 times as many clients come in, this is not sustainable. And I just got to thinking and I said, hey guys, think of some ways we can fix this or we can figure out a better solution. And so we, you know, had some, you know, a week or two of thinking about stuff. And some of the ideas were decent, some not so much. And I just came to the table and I said, what if we um what if we had 24-7 calls every single day for our clients? Like coaching calls. And our, like my team was freaking out. They're like, are you crazy? We can't do that. I said, okay, well, maybe not 24 hours. But what could we do? Could we offer five, six, seven calls a day so that our clients were never more than a few hours away from an answer? And there was a lot of resistance against that initially. But that was the single best thing we've done on the delivery side for our clients because now most of our competitors offer one coaching call a week. We offer seven a day. So like right away, it's like it gives our clients reassurance that we're with them every step of the way and they get the help they need. I want to break it down for a second because, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, ask him about how do you set yourself up different from everybody else? Um, Because I think one of the things I often find with the clients that we work with is they'll say, well, we're results driven. We get results. And my question always back is, so you're telling me if I call Yuri, he's going to say, we don't get results. Call Tamara. Like that, that's like what it, you, don't, right? you don't exist as a business if you don't get results. Right, right, exactly. But I think oftentimes, like if you thought of it as a pyramid, right, people look at cost of entry and assume that's their point of difference. And the cost of entry is not your point of difference. It's what you have to deliver, right, to be in the field. And what you just said is such a brilliant example of like seven coaching calls a day, right? You have this, this um, radical customer service, right, that and coaching that other people can't deliver. But what I'm curious for you is what advice do you have for others to help them find that sweet spot of differentiation. Because I do think it's hard to figure out how to differentiate yourself. And even if, let's just say that your quality is 100 times better than other people, they can they can still say that. So you still got to find a way to kind of create a moat around yourself. So how do, how do you help people? How do people do that? Yeah, I mean, listen, we still have people that sometimes will tell us, oh, you're the same as that other coaching program I did. 
I'm like, we're nothing even close to that. So, so it's tough. Like, this is where marketing comes in. You have to constantly be sharing these messages and stories in the marketplace so people eventually realize it. But I think that the simplest way of differentiation is you obsess about your clients, not the competition. I don't, I could care less. I mean, the funny thing is, like, in our space, I've coached our competition. So it's like, you could go work with them, but I coached them. So why don't you just work with us and get to the source? So for me, I'm like, I've never, and this is just more of my, uh, I call it delusional optimism or confidence or maybe even arrogance sometimes. I don't think I have, I don't think I have competition. I don't, I mean, obviously there is competition. But for me, I'm like, I don't care what they're doing because I know that if I focus on our clients and I'm in the trenches with them, looking at where they're getting stuck, what they need, and I focus on that, who cares what everyone else is doing? So I think that that is easier as you have more volume. So if you have two clients or two customers, it's tough to do that. But if you've got a good data set, you can start to look at what do they need help with? And I think just by focusing on just blowing them out of the water with service or experience, naturally you start to differentiate even without even thinking about differentiating because you're just focused on, on your clients. So I'm so digging this advice about obsessing with your customers. And by the way, if you're out there and you're in a company obsessed about your leaders, your bosses, because they're your customers, or maybe they're your vendors or your clients or whoever it is. But here's the thing about that that I love so much is there are gaps and there are places that people aren't being served. They have problems that need to be solved. They have pain that needs to be dealt with that the competition or others are not meeting and you just have to figure it out. But I love what you just said. You don't do that by obsessing over the competition. You do it by obsessing over your own customers. And I absolutely love that. How do you think about being an everyday innovator and driving innovation every day? Because look, here's the reality. The health field, most of the fields that we're all in are super crowded. So we got to stay ahead, right? And the world is changing so fast. So how, how do you think about innovation on a daily basis? I think innovation, I remember like back in university economics 101, innovation being one of the most important drivers of a country's GDP. And that always just stuck with me, stuck with me. So I think like innovation is important. It's very, very important. And I think again, I think it depends on the business model, the type of industry you're in, maybe in certain industries more than others. Like if you're in a commoditized type of industry, innovation is gonna be very important compared to if you're in a service-based industry your personality as the coach or the expert definitely has a big impact uh, more so than like the delivery in some cases. Like, so people like buy coaches, not just coaching. So I think first and foremost, you have to look at, well, what is the industry I'm in? But nonetheless, like innovation is important. I think for me, a big piece of it is I, one of the, like one of the core things I want my clients to adopt, and I think every business uh, would benefit from this, is just speak your truth as much as you possibly can. Because by speaking your truth, you naturally differentiate. And whether that's whether that's innovation or whatever it is, I think it's important for that truth to be spoken because in an industry where you are one of many, how do people choose? Well, they can choose cheapest price. They can choose, again, if it's a product or whatever. So again, going back to the industry and looking at that, but I think the story you share, what your brand represents, the culture that you live internally as well as exude externally, I think those are very important things that, I mean, we've seen the biggest brands do that over the past 20 years where 
you know, Coca-Cola will show a, a four-minute heart, you know, wrenching ad about some like what does this have to do with Coke? And then you could like literally replace Coke with a, a Ford vehicle, and it has like it's just a story. So I think being a very good storyteller, I think, is an important piece of innovation with respect to whatever business you're in. So storytelling and that ties into the marketing front. And then on the back end, like I think it it goes into this relentless, I will never stop until I continually help my clients win just a little bit better. It, it's almost like Apple, how they come out with like the newest iPhone and it's like it's kind of the same, but it's just a little bit better pixel for the camera. And it's like these small 1% improvements that over time make a huge difference. And I think it comes down to the leader. Like if you truly care about helping people and building a great business, like you should lose, you should lose sleep over why all of your clients are winning. Like as much as our like as much as our coaching is great and our delivery is great, the reality is that we still suck, right? Like if I'm being very, very honest, because if we were amazing to the level that I think we can be, every single one of our clients would win, right? And it's it's like, well, is that realistic? No, but. What can we control to move us closer to that utopian scenario? And that's just a relentless pursuit of excellence. That's just, you know, I think it's a mindset more than anything. I think that 1% is critical. I think the thing that often holds us back is thinking it has to be an 80%, complete 180, like whatever percent degree, whatever you want to use, right? And that seems too big and too scary. But sometimes it's that 1% that makes all the difference, that little adjustment. And I think what I've come to realize over time is that if I do 1% every day, Right, one percent better, one percent different, one percent. Um, you know, try to wow my customers a little bit more by one percent, my listeners. That over time, you know, it's a five hundred percent increase, and it's a compounding. So it actually gets there a little faster than you think it's going to get there. Yeah, and it delays procrastination. It allows you to take action and just course correct as you go. I love that delays procrastination. <laughs> That's like <laughs> normally it's like I am delaying, not I'm delaying procrastination. I really like that. Um, what adv- as an imaginative and an instinctual, what advice do you have for other everyday innovators out there of all types who are looking to innovate, put that full effort for those full results, and influence the way you have? Again, um, I think it depends on you know their the individual makeup. But as you mentioned, I'm like I'm a very instinctual person. I actually just uh, did a video this morning about this, like how to make decisions, and I said I make decisions like that. Because I listen to my instincts and my gut. But I know that not everyone's like that. But I do. St- I still think there is a good amount of intuitive spiritual hit that we all have. It's a matter of are we paying attention to that. So number one, I think, is, is listen to your higher self. And that's part of this. Okay, well, what is my higher self saying? How do I know the difference between my higher self and my ego if that's trying to protect me? So I think... One of the most important character, one of the most important things we can develop as leaders is higher levels of self-awareness. The more self-aware you are, the more you can recognize: is this internal? Is for as an example, is this internal chatter, my ego as an example, or my lower self keeping me small, safe, and protected, or is this really my my true self that's telling me you should do this, even if it's scary? So I think developing the ability to listen to that higher version of you. And being able to eventually distinguish between this is supportive, this is keeping me playing small, and being able to tap into that a lot more, um, regardless of the type of person you are. Because I think we all have that capability. So that, again, it's allowed me, I think, to make a lot of good decisions in my life. And I also just have a global belief that 
everything is happening for me. Like everything, there's no good and bad in my life. I used to be of the mind, like way back in the day, it was like, if this doesn't happen, I'm going to be unhappy, right? If I don't hit this results, I'm going to feel like shit. And it took me a long time to get out of that mindset. And I was not happy for quite some time because of that. And now it's like, we have, you know, like, as I mentioned at the end of the last year, we had two really not so good months and I was really pissed for a moment. And then I was like, what are we going to do to make sure this never happens again? And all of a sudden, that kind of crappy situation turns into a blessing. Because if it hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had to do what we had to do to, you know, get around that. So, you know, again, like there's all sorts of different things of uh, when it comes to advice I could, I can impart here. But I think number one is we have superpowers beyond what we're what we recognize in ourselves. And if we can just become more self-aware to tap into that, I think it's massive. And again, like you, like all of us, it's funny because like all of us have creative genius at some level, but I think a lot of that is kind of beaten out of us through the schooling system. And that's it. You almost have to relearn how to be creative. So I think put yourself in environments where you're learning new things, where you're challenged. You know, we're like, as an example, we're teaching doctors how to write Facebook ads. (laughs) We're like, I don't have a creative bone in my body. I'm like, you do, but you know, it's been a while. So, you know, have a degree of curiosity and playfulness as you go through this process, whatever that process is for yourself and just be able to tap into and listen to, you know, that higher version of yourself, if that makes sense. Well, two things I want to say to that is brilliant advice. One is we, um, we all have the structures for innovation in our brain. Research has shown it. So we actually all have the ability to be innovative, creative, whichever kind of word you gravitate towards. And the reality is, well, the brain's not technically a muscle in this way, it acts like one. So when people say to me, I'm not the innovative one, right? That's Yuri down the hall, right? He's so cool, I'm not. What they're really saying is, it's been untrained out of me, right? It's been beaten down and I haven't used it. So it's dormant. It's kind of one of those things. And for most of us growing up, there were a lot of consequences for drawing outside the lines. And those consequences then showed up at work or in school um, and kind of stay with you for a long time and you don't even realize it. It's actually the reason why we created the assessment is because I kept coming across people who would say, well, I'm not, like, I, I can't do this because I'm not innovative. And I was like, no, you are. And I'm going to prove it to you. And that's what kind of took us down the path of the neuroscience and, and understanding it. Um, so I love that you said that. The other thing I just want to highlight for everybody, just take a pause and really remember it is that battle between the ego and the instinct. And I wrote that down because I was like, oh, I need to go do a blog post on this in a video because I think that they are at war with each other often. And we make the mistake sometimes of listening to the wrong one. And really, the when I say the wrong one, I mean the ego. I think the ego gets in a lot of ways. It just it gets in the way more often than when we realize. And our gut is actually what we want to do and what we know to be the right thing or the right thing to say, but we're afraid to say it and the ego kind of holds us back from doing it. Well, I mean, I'll give you an example. So I'm, I just started watching Temptation Island of all things the other night. I'm like, this is totally like high quality television. <laughs> but what's interesting is, you know, there's a couple so there's four couples that go on this island and they're there because they have doubts in their relationship and they want to be tested to see if it's strong enough. And that's an example. So they're in these relationships, three, five, eight years. And they're like, am I really with the right person? Right there. You're not with the right person. End of story. Like it's it's you just answered the question. Now why are why are you not honoring that? That's your higher self. Like I don't think I'm in the right relationship. But then the ego or the lower self comes in and says, 
well, like it's just so much more convenient if we stay together. Am I going to find someone else? And then that whole kind of fear-based mentality kicks in. And that's just one example. But I mean, like even in business, it's like you, for me, it's, it's a hell yes or it's a no. And what I see a lot of people, and this, this really hurts my heart, is they know it's a hell yes and they don't do it because they're afraid. And that is like, that is the one thing that will crush your soul more than anything else in life. And if there's anything I can impart on your listeners is everything that's a hell yes is not supposed to feel easy and whatever. It's, it's hard, like how, you know, raising kids, growing a business, whatever, but it's worth it. And if I think if you're an entrepreneur or someone who, well, if you're an entrepreneur or intrapreneur, most likely you value growth. And if you value growth, that means you relish challenges. So don't look for things to be easy. Like understand that this is going to be hard. Cool. Awesome. That's a challenge. I'm going to grow as a result of that. And if you value that, then everything becomes a blessing. So it's like, this is a hell yes, but I'm scared out of my pants. But I know it's the thing I need to do. Awesome. I'm like, I'm trembling. I have the butterflies. I'm going to do it anyways, because I know this is what I need to do to grow. Versus a lot of other people talk a big game and they're not willing to step up to that. And that for me is just, it's unfortunate. I'm so with you that I think when someone says to me, I had an idea once, that's like, that just hurts cares? me. Well, it hurts me because they didn't do it, right? It's like, it's, it's exactly what you just said of like, they had this thing, this passion that they wanted to pursue, whatever it was, and they never did it because they were afraid. They for a million reasons, right? The ego took over. And it's so sad. I know. Like my mom just last week, she was saying, you know, like, because uh, my parents lived in France for seven years before I was born. And they're like, you know, your father and I were thinking of, uh, we had the opportunity to bring Evian over to Canada. I'm like, I don't care. You didn't do it. Why are you even talking about it? It's irrelevant. Why are we having this conversation? Yeah. How, do you, how does that feel about, oh, this could have happened? That like, for me, like even the fact that she uttered those words, I'm like, how do you, how do you go through your day with stuff like that in your head? For me, I can't. I don't understand. I'm like, I understand everyone. Everyone's not like me, but I, I am like mortified by living with regret. I would rather take risk, live life, do things that put me in really sticky situations, but I'll figure out a way to make it happen. That's just yeah. I'm with you. And here's the thing: I think for people to remember is, so I have opportunities that I missed or didn't take. But I'm not upset about them and I don't, I think, hold on to them. They're not my high school glory days for me because uh, I had other opportunities that I did take. So did I miss that one over there? Yeah, I missed that opportunity. Damn, didn't see it. Like, should have taken it. But I don't even know if this should, actually. I didn't take it. But I think if you fill your life with opportunities, some you take and some you don't take. And some are mistakes and some are not mistakes. Some fail, some don't. But if you if you continually talk yourself out of the big opportunity right in front of you, you'll never get it. And then you end up living with regrets of the things that you wish you had done and didn't do. Um, but I think if you're always looking and willing to jump in, right? Some will work, some won't, some you'll miss, some you'll catch, but you'll be in the opportunity game at least. Yeah. And you're gonna learn every like, I mean, you either win or you learn, you know, so it's it's a win-win. Yeah. So, okay. So one qu- last question for you, more personal. What's one thing we'd be surprised to learn about you? Uh, well, I don't know if you guys, if you're on, if you're on video seeing this, I've got four young boys. They just came I've seen school. them. They're adorable running back and forth. <laughs> yeah. It's, they're pretty awesome. So it's funny because um, when I tell people I've got four kids, they're like, you've got four kids. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I look my age, but 
whatever. Um, oh, yeah, like most people who know me know I have four kids, but for most other people, uh, yeah, I mean, I love, I love having a big family. It's great. And again, it's, it's a challenge. Like, I'm like, apparently I enjoy challenges. So having four kids, having four boys, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a good learning every single day. Oh, I'll tell you, I have two boys and uh, they're both teenagers now. I think yours are a little younger, I'm guessing by their height as they ran by the door. But uh, it is, it's a blessing and it is loud as hell in my house. All oh, yeah. yeah, totally. I need to like honestly soundproof our house because as they get older, it's going to be worse. Yeah, it's well, yeah. And, you know, open floor plans were a great idea in 2019. Come 2020, I was like, this sucks. I need an office door. Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, seriously. Let, let's uh, get the carpets back. Separate yeah, rooms. Yeah, open, hot, high ceilings, everything echoes. Not good for stay at home, working at home. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Well, Yuri, thank you so much for joining us. Just a wealth of really great insights. And I really, you know, the two things I want, there's a lot to take out of this. The two things I'm going to take out of this and do, one is I'm going to do a $10 million exercise. Love that. In fact, I'm about to go out to lunch with my with my partner. I'm going to have a discussion with him about it because I think I think we can both learn something from that because he's an entrepreneur as well. But also, I want to really encourage all of us to think about when we're scared or we say no to something, if it's the ego talking. because I do think oftentimes that's the biggest thing that holds us back and leads to all those regrets. So we're safe in the moment. We feel comfortable. We have our little mac and cheese moment, as I call them, but it doesn't feel good later. So Yuri, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Tamara. This has been great. Congratulations. By listening to this podcast, you took another step towards becoming an everyday innovator. To leap forward, visit www.gotolaunchstreet.com and take the Innovation Quotient Edge Assessment to discover your unique everyday innovator style and access the Everyday Innovator Digital Magazine for the top tools, insights, and inspiration at your fingertips 24-7. Tomorrow, we'll be back with another Everyday Innovator conversation soon. In the meantime, if you got a nugget of value out of this podcast, let Tamara know by leaving a five-star review and comment. Your review equals more guests, more listens, bigger impact. Until next time.